bros, the useless Christmas ghosts, you sprosy owners. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. Are you feeling you'd tide Will you allow the tide of Yule to wash over your Santa Claus? I'd like a new bicycle this Christmas, but I won't be getting it off Santa Claus. I'm going to get the bicycle off me. I'm going to get me a bicycle for Christmas. I want a commuter bicycle. It's not quite a mountain bike and it's not quite a racer. It's designed for comfort on public roads. Mountain bikes are nice and sturdy. They have good suspension, great grip. You'll never slip off a mountain bike. But when you use a mountain bike for your commute, in and out of work on a public road, it's hard work. You really gotta use your legs with a mountain bike. Now a racing bike, very fast, not a lot of effort. Very thin tyres, perfect for a public road, but the seat will vandalise your rectum. So I want a commuter bike, the comfort and sturdiness of a mountain bike, with the speed and agility of a racing bike. A commuter bicycle, very fast, with a seat that is compassionate to one's fundament. That's what I want to get myself for Christmas. So this is what I tried to do last week. Now at first I went looking for brand new commuter bicycles, but I just couldn't resist second hand. I, I can't bring myself to buy a brand new bicycle if I know that there's perfectly good ones out there for second hand, just on principle. So I found one. I found a second hand commuter bicycle rally, just like new, fucking fantastic. So I contacted the seller, who were located in the Munster area. The bicycle was in East Clare. The person selling the bicycle asked if I'd meet them in a village called Tola, specifically in front of a a Chinese takeaway. And I said, which Chinese takeaway? And they said, there's only one Chinese takeaway in Tola. It's on Main Street. But I'd never been to Tola. I'd never even heard of Tola, to be honest. So I looked for it on Google Maps. And it's about 20 minutes north of Limerick by car. It's quite close to a village called Scarif on Loch Darg and I happen to have a friend who lives in Scarif who owns a van who goes back and forth from Scarif to Limerick all the time so I said I'm buying a bicycle in Tulla can I have a lift there please and a lift back when I buy the bicycle and they said sure thing so I made the trip to the little village of Tulla to get my commuter bicycle so I arrived in Tulla at 2pm and I was meeting the person for the bicycle at 3pm the first thing I noticed was the wind. It was a chilling breeze that smelled particularly fresh and I felt it on my neck. The breeze was blowing diagonally from the ground up and entering my nostrils because Tola is at the top of a very big hill and the main street acts like a cavern, like a funnel for wind to travel diagonally from the ground up. So it was chilly and unpleasant but also when a breeze is directed right up into your nostrils, you experience something very familiar, but in a new way, like the wind has taken its top off. When I got to Tulla, I was quite impressed by its size. In my mind, this would be a really tiny Irish village, but it had more of the makings of a town, but it was quite empty. The sense that I got with this place called Tulla was... This town used to be important at one point in its history and something happened and it stopped being important. This village of Tulla, it felt a bit like being in Cuba, but
but nothing like Cuba. A strange little grey Irish town, a time capsule town. As if nothing new had been built since the 1950s. Everything needed a lick of paint. I couldn't decide what to call the place. It was the size of a village, but it was built like a town. And the buildings were like old, rural, middle-class money. Like the house a priest would live in. The names of the local businesses were quite unique. There was a restaurant called Flappers. I'm like, what the fuck did they call it Flappers for? Are they referring to the 1920s American dancers known as Flappers? Or is it because of the wind? Is it because the wind makes everything flap? There was a beauty salon called Wind Swept Beauty Salon. A windy theme was emerging in the naming of the businesses. And I adored that because... Like I said, I'm walking up this hill, this main street, and I'm noticing the breeze, this diagonal breeze that comes from the ground and goes up. And then they called the, the beauty salon wind swept, which to me meant that if you went into the beauty salon and got your hair done, as soon as you came out, it was fucked because of that diagonal hill taller breeze, like a disclaimer. So it's very quiet as I walk along and I'm searching for the Chinese, the Chinese takeaway on the main street. And then I see it, and it says, Teach China. And I'm like, what the fuck are they calling the Chinese takeaway? Teach China for what the fuck does that mean? Teach China what? Teach China how to cook? Is this a Chinese takeaway where there's no Chinese people involved? And it's just people from Tala going, we're, we're going to teach Chinese people how to cook Chinese food. Is that why it's called Teach China? And then I realize, no, it's not Teach China. It's Chuck. China. Chuck is the Irish word for house, so it means China house. T E Fada A C H is Chuck, but they didn't put a Fada over the E, so it just says Teach China. So I got a ferocious chuckle off that. But the China house was closed, and Chuck China was closed, and it was 2 pm, and I'm like, I'm meeting some cunt here for a fucking. for a bicycle in an hour. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do on the main street of Tulla? I'd already exhausted the novelty of the diagonal breeze. I can't marvel at the wind anymore. The windswept beauty salon was actually open, and I didn't need a haircut, but I will need one in about two weeks, so I thought. I started getting angry with my own hair. I started thinking, fucking preemptive strike. I'm gonna get you before you start growing, before you become a problem. But I don't think the windswept beauty salon did men's hair. And I've actually had negative experiences in the past trying to get a haircut in women's beauty salons. About 10 years ago, I just didn't want to walk to the barber's, so I walked into a beauty salon and I said, will you give me a haircut? And then they said, we don't cut men's hair. And I said, come on, it's just hair, will you cut it? They're like, we don't cut men's hair. And then I said, to be honest, the type of haircut I'm looking for isn't too far off what a middle-aged woman would want. So can you just do that? Just pretend it's a middle-aged woman's head and give me that. Give me the Philomena Begley which I now realise was slightly offensive. (laughs) And they said, no, we don't do men's hair. And I didn't want a repeat of that in Tulla. I didn't want to get ran out of town for demanding a haircut in the windswept hair salon. I got paranoid. I was thinking, if I caused a scene, like my book, my book is high up in the charts, so if I caused a scene, that could make the fucking papers. Blind boy gets unmasked for demanding a Philomena Begley haircut in Tulla. I don't need that type of attention. And even if they said yes, I'd have managed to fuck up the the hairdresser small talk anyway. They'd be like, what are you doing in Tulla? You don't seem like you're from around here. And I'd be like, I'm here to purchase a bicycle that won't vandalise my anus. 
So I stood outside Teach China with a windy cold face, going what the fuck am I going to do for an hour? Because it was up at the top of a hill and it's quite rural and isolated, there wasn't great reception on my phone. I was getting bits at 3G and then the 3G was disappearing so I couldn't even go on the internet for a little bit. So I said look fuck it, there's an hour, let's just go for a little wander, a small wander, don't get lost, just a little wander. So I leave the front of Teach China and walk a little bit up the road and I take a right and I go up this kind of boring, like a small, small kind of road towards a school and then I see an old graveyard, like really fucking old graveyard with the the ruins of a mad old looking church. So I start getting excited going, all right, a bit of history here, let, let's find out what's happening. And as I walk up towards the graveyard to the right, I see a fucking holy well. I see a holy well. A sacred well. Now I start getting excited. Because here's the thing. Tala, like the area where I am in East Clare, it's quite close to Loch Darg. I've spoken about Loch Darg in a few podcasts back. It's quite close to Loch Darg. Loch Darg is named after the Dagda in Irish mythology. So I know I'm in an area that's quite historically ancient and now I'm looking at a holy well and not only am I looking at a little holy well there's the ruins of a church beside it and you know from listening to this podcast for the past two years holy wells pre-christian Irish folklore this is something I'm obsessed with so based on the visual information there I can start making assumptions if you see a holy well and it's right there beside an old church you're dealing with something that's minimum a thousand to fifteen hundred years old and because of the holy well you could be talking two three thousand years of historical significance in that one area before christianity in ireland natural springs sacred wells were sites of spiritual and social importance in indigenous irish culture people would gather and worship at natural springs because they believed that these springs were little portals to the other world, to the parallel dimension. And after St. Patrick, around 500 AD, when Christianity took hold in Ireland, what St. Patrick would do is he would convert people to Christianity by being respectful and absorbing pre-existing beliefs. So the people were already worshipping around these wells and Patrick would make a Christian and baptise people in these wells and teach them about Christ through this, through the well and the water or the plants that grew around the well. So people are gathering at this well anyway because that's their spiritual belief and then the Christian missionaries like St. Patrick would go, well, let's just baptise you in this water and I'm going to build a little church here beside the well because you've been coming here for a thousand years anyway so let's not fuck with things too much still come to the well except now there's just a little building beside it and it's christian and it's it's different but it's the same we'll figure something out so i get to this little well and it's like entombed in a like a cairn which is loads of stones mounded on top of each other and there's an ancient celtic cross and i couldn't tell you how old the celtic cross is but just inside the wall is like a carved stone with inscriptions i couldn't read and a cross carved into it and that was definitely more than a thousand years old and then poking out of the well 
was this big tree, like a pine tree, but it was unlike any other tree that was around. It stood by itself. And that meant that that was a sacred tree. Trees that grow from holy wells, no one ever fucks with them. You don't fuck with them. Because with sacred wells and holy wells, they're kind of half Christian, half pagan. So on the one hand, it's a holy well beside a little church and Christ is there. But also, the fucking fairies are involved. The fairies are involved and the other world is involved. So don't fuck with that well. And definitely don't fuck with the tree that grows from the well because that's a sacred tree. So this weird tree is poking out and I know now that this is a sacred tree. So I'm beside myself in Tulla. Absolutely thrilled now that I'm... I can confidently say that I'm at a holy well that I know is very, very old and very important. But now I need to know everything about the well. Because I couldn't find, like, an inscription or a modern signage anywhere that's pointing towards the well or why it's important or who it's associated with. So I need to start looking this up, but the internet is shit. I can't get decent reception on my phone to start researching this well. I don't want to call down to the windswept beauty salon to ask them if they know anything about the holy well. So I hatch a plan. I go into the graveyard beside the well and I look for the tallest gravestone. Now these are real old gravestones, really, really old. I look for the tallest gravestone and I put my phone on the top of it and then I get my iPhone cable going into my laptop to try and get good reception. So now I'm tethering in internet off the top of this tall gravestone. Now the internet was shit but I did get reception. So now I'm sitting on a fucking... Sitting in front of some cunt's gravestone from the 1600s. Googling about the holy well. So first off, I'm in this graveyard. And there's the ruins of a little church right there beside me. So I need to find out how old is this church. Because to my eye, it looks more than a thousand years old. I Google it. It was built in the 600s. So the church alone is 1400 years old. Holy fuck. So the sacred well is called St. McCullough's Well. The little church is St. McCullough's Church. So I'm correct. This is a very ancient Christian site where a church was built directly beside a sacred pagan well. So now I'm in my academic sites. Who's St. McCullough? What's his crack? And I find a journal article in the Journal of the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland from 1911. And this is quoting a manuscript written about the life of St. McCullough that was written by monks in Ireland in 1141. So first off, the well, the holy well, the pagan well, going back could be a couple of thousand years, don't know how long it is. It's a tubernashul, which is an eye well. So the indigenous people of Ireland, long, long, long ago, worshipped at that well because they believed that it cured ailments of the eyes. People would come there and they'd pick moss from around the well and they'd wipe their eyes with it and it would cure if they had conjunctivitis whatever the fuck the water in this well would make your eyes healthier now tubernashul wells that cure the eyes because there's all different wells all over Ireland with different curative properties wells that would have cured the eyes these are natural springs so it's water that's coming deep deep underground and bringing up minerals with it so wells that cured the eyes usually contained a lot of zinc. So 1,500, 2,000 years ago, you've no fucking pharmacies, you've nothing, you've no modern medicine, but you find a little well and you might have an eye infection and you wash your eyes in this well and all of a sudden your eyes get better. You're probably getting minerals like zinc or other minerals that might have 
antiseptic properties and it was helping people's eyesight. So the people would go, this isn't a well, this is magic. This is a portal to the other dimension, to Tirnanog, to the land of eternity. And this is life-giving water that can cure blindness. Because a simple eye infection that you and I now would cure with some topical cream that you get in a pharmacy, it could lead to blindness back then. But St. McCullough, he founded the town of Tulla. He built a monastery there around this holy well. He built his monastery. Now what's interesting about St. McCullough, he was a disciple of fucking Palladius. I get very excited in the graveyard. This is why this is mad. Now you might be thinking, look Jesus, it's fucking December blind boy, you're not freezing in the graveyard trying to tether internet onto your laptop. It was actually quite a beautiful afternoon. Like it's the middle of December so the sun is pure low in the sky and, and everything felt pink. It was quite beautiful. But here's why I got excited when I heard Palladius. St. Patrick popularised Christianity in Ireland around 500. But he wasn't the first Christian in Ireland. He wasn't the first Christian missionary. Before St. Patrick, there were Christians in Ireland. A tiny amount of them. And Palladius, he was from Gaul, which is like France or Belgium. Palladius was sent to Ireland by the Pope in the 400s. That's a hundred years before St. Patrick. Palladius was sent to Ireland to be a bishop of the tiny amount of Christians that were in Ireland. So St. McCullough, who founded Tulla, was a disciple of Palladius. So I'm now sitting in some fucking I mean ground zero shit. A pagan Christian well that might predate fucking St. Patrick. And the beauty of the first Irish Christian missionaries is that they weren't treated as regular human beings. They were absorbed into mythology. You see, we didn't take Christianity hook, line and sinker. Rome didn't conquer us. Rome stayed the fuck away from us. So, so we remixed Christianity. We made it surreal. We made it bizarre. We made it our own. The oral storytelling culture would speak about these missionaries as if they were mythological figures. Gods, magical, pagan. So St. McCullough, who founded the monastery in Tulla, beside that holy well and his little church. He had the magical ability to tame bulls. I spoke last week about the Tawn, an epic in Irish mythology, about the hero Cú Cullen who single-handedly defended Ulster because a war was started because a queen and a king couldn't decide who owned the most cows. Ireland around 400. The importance of a ruler or a petty king, it was about how much cattle they owned. Cattle was really important and bulls in particular, a particularly aggressive or ferocious bull, was a venerated animal in Irish society around 400 AD. So St. McCullough of Tulla, he had the ability to tame bulls. So if the bull is this feared and venerated creature in the local folklore, it's basically saying, well, this Christian fella, he's more powerful than all the Druids. He, he's more, he's got Christ. This, this Christian thing is way more powerful than any in that because he can tame fucking bulls so that the bull was no longer aggressive. It was still a big strong bull but St. McCullough was so magical he could control nature and make bulls docile servants. So the legend goes that St. McCullough when he was building this tiny little church that I was staring at, I was staring at the runes of this thing while I was under this gravestone tethering the internet and they're staring at this little church reading about the legend of St. McCullough. St. McCullough built that church with his own hands, with no help. He built it himself. But he was so busy 
building this church that he had no time to go and get food for himself, but he had a trusted bull, one of the most powerful, dangerous bulls in all of Munster. But St. McCullough was able to use his understanding of nature and the compassion of Christ to make this bull friendly and docile. So what McCullough would do is that he'd be building the church by himself and then he'd send the bull off with like shopping bags on his back and then the tame bull would wander the land and go to other monasteries and bring food back. And everyone all over the land, whenever they saw this bull, they'd never run away in fear. Like, there's a big mad bull. They'd be like, no, that's St. McCullough's bull. He's a lovely fella. Leave him alone. He's just collecting the shopping. But one day, the bull went off on a journey. And when he came back with the food for St. McCullough, the bull was attacked by seven robbers. But the bull couldn't defend itself because it was such a lovely, compassionate bull that was filled with the love of Christ. So the robbers were beating the bull. And the bull was screaming in pain and couldn't defend itself because it didn't know anger. And the screams of the bull were so painful that they resonated all around Munster and made it to St. McCullough's ears as he was building his church up on the hill in Tulla. And then when St. McCullough heard the cries of the bull, he cast a spell that went throughout the lands and immediately turned all seven of the robbers into pillars of stone. And you can visit the pillars of stone. They're called the Clooney Stone Row in Spans Hill, which is close by. But what's so beautiful about this is that... It's a collection of seven standing stones. They were put there by humans, but they could be 5,000 years old. We don't know. These seven standing stones, about six foot tall, they were put there by an ancient culture. Why are they standing after 5,000 years? Why are they still there now? Because it's a fairy fort. You don't fuck with a circle of standing stones in Ireland. The superstition is strong. That's a fairy circle, a fairy fort. No one ever fucked with them. Not even the Brits would fuck with them. You just left them there because they belong to the fairies and anyone who fucks with a stone fort in Ireland just don't bother. Something bad will happen. So they're left there for thousands and thousands of years. But what I found here is this this story that the people's explanation for why those stones are there is they're robbers who tried to rob St. McCullough's compassionate bull and they were turned immediately to stone and that's what they are, petrified robbers from 1500 years ago. But then what happens? The robbers were part of a gang. So then the rest of the gang members go looking for those robbers and they get to the site and all they find are the seven stones and they see all their friends petrified in stone and in the middle is the dead bull. So they try and collect the bull's body and cook the meat, but the meat wouldn't cook. The bull wouldn't cook. So the robbers become enraged. They're like, first of all, this fucking McCullough prick. First of all, he's after turning our our bodies into stone. And now he's laughing at us. We can't even eat his bull. The meat won't cook. And the robbers become enraged. And they go up to Tulla, to the monastery, to kill McCullough. And they arrive up there with their weapons to kill him. And then McCullough casts a spell. And their limbs stop working. All the robbers go limp. And they're paralysed, every one of them left to die, completely unable to move. But then St. McCullough walks among them and cures them of the paralysis that he just gave them. And these furious, angry criminals, these robbers who had come to kill him, they drop down to their knees and they become his first followers. And he baptises them in the well. And they help to build the church, the church that I'm fucking sitting beside. 
tethering Wi-Fi off a grave. Now, of course, none of this is real. I'm sure the, the church was built in a very conventional fashion, but it doesn't matter. This is the mythology. This is the story that has fucking survived for 1500 years. This is the Irish oral tradition. This is what I adore, what I love. In the absence of writing, the landscape tells the story. The church, the standing stones that are five miles down the road, the well, the tree. The oral story is a map of the land around me. But one detail from the myth that sadly isn't relevant anymore is... It mentions the standing stones, which like I said, you can go and see them. They're still there. But also... McCullough's bull repelled wolves. Wolves were afraid of the bull, but there's no more wolves. The wolves are dead, the wolves are extinct. There were wolves in Ireland, and people were afraid to travel the roads in case of robbers and wolves. Robbers are still there, but the Irish wolf is sadly extinct. I mean, this is why, even in Tulla today, the first thing I notice is this breeze, because it's up on a hill, and then... The salon is called the windswept salon. And then the restaurant is called Flappers. That could be my artistic hunger for patterns. But I think that's relevant. I, th- I think there is a, a windy theme even in the naming of the businesses. Whether the people who name those businesses know it or not. The windswept hair salon lets you know something about the wind on the hill of Tulla. Same with Flappers. Flapping in the wind. And so does Teach China. Chalk China. A Chinese restaurant trying to assimilate in an Irish village. And then I start thinking about the significance of this story and what it means and why it survives. Because the thing is with oral, with oral stories, the best stories survive because they're useful. And remember I said earlier when, when I got to this little village Tulla, the feeling I got was is this place was once very important. It was. Tulla was a market town. This was a market town. Tulla once had a population of about 10,000 people and then the famine destroyed it. The famine reduced the population by 90%. It's a famine ghost town, but it was once a very important market town. Goods would come in from Loch Darg, they'd be sold in Tulla and from Tulla, from the monastery, people would travel and bring their goods all around. But this was obviously dangerous. If you were a trader and you had animals or food or spices, whatever the fuck people are trading going out throughout history, you leave Tulla, now you're at the danger of robbers on the roads. So if you've got this saint who can turn robbers to stone when they try and steal from his bull who's just transporting things to different towns, the subtext of that story, the comfort of that story to the people is Saint McCullough will bring law and order this Christianity that he's bringing with his monastery, it will protect you from robbers in this market town. Don't be afraid to travel the roads with your goods because if you're a Christian and you're a disciple of St. McCullough, you'll be protected and the robbers will turn to stone. They'll be afraid of you. So now I'm having a great time in Tulla. I am thrilled that I came to Tulla to get this bicycle and I'm having lots of fun up in the graveyard with my laptop. And then I went went back over, I got up and went over to the Holy Well And I washed my eyes with the water. Because why the fuck not? People have been doing it for thousands of years. I can't go to a fucking holy well and not wash my eyes in the eye well. Then I get paranoid again. I'm thinking you can't go up the fucking Tulla with a name like Blind Boy. And then wash your eyes in the holy well. Looking for a Philomena Begley haircut. And a bicycle that won't vandalise your hole. That'll definitely make the papers. And then I find out 
just beyond the holy well, outside the gates of this cemetery, there's what's called a killeen. Throughout Irish history, if a baby died before it was baptised, before it received a, a Christian baptising, the baby couldn't be buried in a Christian cemetery and the parents didn't know what to do with their, their baby's body. So these people would turn to the pagan mythology of the earth instead. So they would create little unofficial graveyards for unbaptized babies close to sacred sites and sacred trees and sacred wells. The ancient pagan spirituality of the land was seen as an option B when Christianity was denied. And that made me feel a little, a little more sad and somber. And I walked, I closed up my laptop and I put my phone back into my pocket and walked around the ancient graveyard, real fucking old graveyard. I looked at the time on my phone, it was quarter to three. I was like, fucking hell, those 45 minutes just flew by. I'm thrilled I came to Tulla. I learned so much that was, that was phenomenally interesting. I'm going to go up to the Teach China now in 15 minutes and I'm going to meet that man. I'm going to buy that commuter bicycle that I'm going to get collected in the van and bring it back to Limerick. Everything's going well. I'll just have another look around this graveyard for the next 15 minutes. So I start wandering around the graveyard and looking at all the different headstones and they're so old, looking at all the different names, knowing too that even though the gravestones are from the 1800s, 1700s, knowing that this little church, the ruins of the church, knowing that it's 1300 years old, that even underneath those graves are older graves still, layers of life and death underneath my feet. And the diagonal breeze is whistling through the Celtic crosses and wind sweeping my hair. And I look down and I see this strange little gravestone that's not like any of the other gravestones. And it's old, it's from the 1800s. It's got lichen all over it and I can barely make out the inscriptions. But what's very clear and what makes this gravestone so strange, carved into it in stone are two pigs. Two fucking pigs on a gravestone. So now I'm like, what the fuck is this? What's going on here? I thought this journey was over. I need to know why I'm in a fucking graveyard and there's a, there's a gravestone here with two fucking pigs on it in, in consecrated ground in a church. The fuck are there two pigs doing on a gravestone? What type of pagan shit is this? So I immediately whip out the laptop again and the phone goes up onto a taller gravestone and I'm tethering Wi-Fi and what I found out fucking blew me away and I don't want to interrupt this story so I'm going to go straight for an ocarina pause right now. So I'm in my office so I don't have uh, an ocarina but what I do have is a copy of the Dublin Review. The Dublin Review is a, it's a little Irish literary journal that publishes short stories and I subscribe to it and I get four of them a year and I enjoy it because I get to read contemporary short stories in it so I'm going to hit myself into the head with the most recent copy of the Dublin Review, 93, issue number 93. And when I do this, you're going to hear an advertisement for something. This looks like it's going to be a painful book to hit myself into the head with. Because it's... It's floppy. You'd think the heavy books are the sore ones. It's not. It's the small little ones that have a whip to them. 
So I'm going to hit myself over the head with uh, issue number 93 of the Dublin Review. Yeah, that's not pleasant. Not nice at all. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A snap. There's a snap to that. Which will leave my forehead red, no doubt. So there you go. That was the... the Hitting myself into the head with the Dublin Review pause. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. If this podcast brings you distraction, entertainment, mirth, merriment, companionship... Whatever it is that this podcast does for you, please consider paying me for the work that I put into making this podcast. This is my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. This is how I rent out my office. This is how I'm not beholden to advertisers. I get to speak each week about what I'm legitimately, genuinely passionate about. No advertiser can tell me what to talk about in order to boost listenership figures. I get to make the best podcast that I can possibly make. So if you'd like to support that work, please do. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. But if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. Because the person who's paying is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets the exact same podcast. I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. I adore this podcast. I love that this is my job. I cannot believe how lucky I am that I've been doing this for six years in a row. And I want to keep this going for as long as possible. And so long as I'm listener funded with patrons, so long as that's the case, it can keep going. So it's patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Just to promote some gigs for 2024. On Monday and Tuesday, the 22nd and 23rd of January, I'm up in Dublin and Vicar Street doing some live podcasts. Wonderful Monday, Tuesday gigs. A relaxed night. You'll be home in bed, ready for work the next day. Come along to my Vicar Street gigs. There's so much crack. February 5th, I'm over in Oslo. I'm doing a live podcast in Oslo in Norway. I cannot wait to come over and do a live podcast for my listeners in Norway. So come along to that gig in Oslo on the 5th of February. Then, where am I? I'm in Berlin on the 8th and the 9th. Uh, they're mostly sold out, but come along to Berlin if you want to see me in Berlin. 20th of February, I'm up in Derry. I'm up in Derry in the Millennium Forum doing a live podcast for the Science Festival. I'm in Galway doing a live podcast on the 22nd of February. I forgot to fucking promote that gig, but there's only like four tickets left. But if you're in Galway and want to come along, come along to that in February. Killarney on the 23rd of February. I think I'm, I'm in the, the INEC in Killarney on the 23rd of February. And then April... I'm back over in Scotland, England and Wales. 
I announced this tour last week and it's setting out very quickly. If you want to come along to this, um, it's starting on the 21st of April. I'm in Newcastle, Glasgow, Nottingham, uh, Cardiff, Brighton, Cambridge, Bristol, and then finishing off on the 1st of May in the Hammersmith Apollo in London, which is going to be my biggest London show to date. Come along to those gigs. They're going to be wonderful. If you're looking for nice last minute Christmas presents, come along to one of my gigs. Also, my book of short stories, Topographia Hibernica, is in shops. So back to this graveyard in Tulla. The wind is sweeping my hair. It's approaching three o'clock. It's starting to get a bit dim, a bit dark, a bit grey. The wonderful pink sun that had been there is disappearing. The horizon turned kind of a, a gloomy navy colour. And I start to get a little bit jittery that I'm standing in an ancient graveyard while the light disappears into a gloom and the air gets a chill. But I'm staring down at this fucking limestone slab with a carving of two pigs on it and I crack open my laptop. And that was the moment I started to get a little bit uneasy because the glow from my laptop was more visible now. It was becoming a light source as the sun was disappearing. I start squinting down at the gravestone, trying to make out the inscriptions because it's getting dark and the inscriptions are kind of, it's weathered because this is an old limestone and the rain over the years has eaten away at it. But I make out a name. The name says Michael O'Sullivan, who departed this life on the 15th of April, 1818, and then clear as day above it, the carving of the two pigs. It had looked almost as if someone had made sure that the pigs were visible, like someone had been cleaning this grave slab. So I start searching online for gravestone in Tulla with pigs. And I come across a piece of a piece of folklore that was recorded by the great Eddie Linehan, who I've had as a guest on this podcast. Eddie Linehan is a Shanachie. A Shanachie is someone who preserves old stories. It's a traditional Irish storyteller. You can't just become a Shanachie. You can't go to college and qualify as a Shanachie. No one person or organisation can bestow the title of Shanachie upon you. It's like the people just agree that this person is a Shanachie. It really has to be earned through years and years of collecting oral tales of the land. And Eddie Lenahan is a fucking Shanachie. He's been doing this for years. And a story that Eddie recorded from the area of Tulla by speaking to older people in the area. Eddie recorded and preserved the story as to why there's two pigs on this gravestone. And this is the story I'm going to tell you. And it's fucking mad. And this is real. In 1818, in Tulla, when it was a thriving market town, and this is 20 years before the famine, when Tulla was a thriving market town, a man called Michael O'Sullivan was a pig breeder and he had two prize pigs, pigs that were well fed, that he had spent the whole winter feeding and getting strong so that he could sell these pigs and earn money from them. These were prize pigs. So Michael was like, I'm going to fucking sell these pigs in Tulla Market. They're brilliant pigs. I'm going to sell them. I'm going to sell them big, fat, massive pigs. So he loads the two pigs up onto his cart and he goes to market to Tulla hoping someone's going to buy these pigs but for whatever reason 
nobody in Tulla Market purchased Michael's pigs. He tried all day long to sell these pigs. No one wanted them. So he left the market at night time really fucking disappointed. Really sickened because these pigs, that was going to be his wages. So he's got a donkey and cart. He loads the two pigs back onto the cart. Gets onto the donkey and says, fuck it, I'm going to head back home without selling these fucking pigs. Real disappointed. So he's so pissed off on the way home that he just decides, ah, Jesus, I'll have a pint. I'll have a fucking pint. So he goes into a shabine. Now a shabine, it's not a pub. It's like an illegal pub where they sell pochine. So Michael O'Sullivan goes into the shabine, leaves the two pigs outside with the donkey and cart and gets fucking shit-faced on pochine, really drunk. Gets back out, it's dark now at this point, hops back up onto the cart with the two pigs and the donkey. Now the thing is, there's no such thing as drink driving back then. This is 1818. If you got shit-faced in the pub, the donkey knows the way home. You can be drunk. Now this is the bit people are unsure of. That night, Michael O'Sullivan's wife is at home and she hears an unmerciful disturbance out in the yard, so she runs out. It's the donkey, the cart, the two pigs and no Michael. And the donkey is fucking terrified, really frightened. Now, it's pitch dark, it's 1818, so she's trying her best, trying to see where the fuck is Michael, where is Michael? So she freaks out, she gets her family out. Michael is lost, he's, he's in a ditch somewhere, we don't know what's happened, so a search party is sent out to try and find Michael along the route to Tulla, but they can't find him. They search the roads high and low, they cannot find Michael O'Sullivan. So they call off the search and they say, let's start again as soon as the sun comes up. It's pointless trying to find him in the pitch dark. The next morning when the light comes up, they look at the back of the cart and there's a fuckload of blood and Michael's two shoes, but no Michael. They don't really know what happened. Was Michael murdered or killed along the way? And that's why there was blood all over the back of the cart. Was there a scuffle? Was he robbed on the road? Accidentally killed? And whoever killed him hid his body? Because like I said, Tolla, it's the market town. And going back to that legend of McCullough, robbers would rob people on the way to the market town. So it's not absurd to think that Michael was murdered by robbers and then they hid his body or destroyed it. They don't know. All they do know is that Michael isn't here, he's gone, and the donkey and cart is there, and so are the two pigs. We don't have a body. And then they start to think, what if, what if Michael got really fucking drunk in the cart? So drunk that he climbed into the back of the cart and lay down beside the pigs. The pigs that he was annoyed with because he couldn't sell them. Maybe he didn't feed the pigs because he was pissed off with him and went and had a load of pints or put Jean instead. Maybe he was so paralysed with drink that the pigs thought he was dead and they started to eat him while he was alive but he's so drunk on put Jean that he's not going to wake up. Maybe that explains why the donkey was so frightened. That's why the donkey ran back home. Maybe the donkey could smell the blood and the violence that was happening behind it on the cart. The family didn't know what to do. It's fucking 1818. Do we call a priest or do we call a guard? So they called the priest and the priest said Michael is inside those pigs. Michael's inside those pigs and Michael is a Christian man and he's going to need to be buried in the old church in Tulla Graveyard. 
so they quickly kill the two pigs and make a coffin that can fit the two pigs and that's what's buried in Tulla graveyard. That's the gravestone that I was standing over. That's why it has a carving of two pigs. There's two pigs buried underneath that gravestone which they believe has the body of Michael O'Sullivan inside them. But no one has exhumed it. Nobody knows. The family chose not to get the guards involved. So it could also be an elaborate cover-up for a fucking murder. In 1818, once a body goes down into the ground in consecrated ground, they're not going to dig in someone up to do a forensic investigation. And the only clue we have left is on that gravestone. On that gravestone that I'm looking at. Where it's covered by lichen except for the carving of the two pigs. Someone keeps coming along and making sure that you can still see those two pigs. Someone in Tulla knows that legend and keeps scraping away the lichen as it grows over the limestone so that the story is never forgotten. If the lichen is allowed to grow over it, I wouldn't have seen those two pigs. It just would have been another gravestone. Someone cleans the slab to keep the story alive. So what I came across there was an utterly bizarre murder mystery. A man might have been murdered and they came up with this story or a man was eaten by his two pigs and the priest decided, well you have to bury the pigs then because he's a Christian, he needs to go to heaven. And I felt sad for that little graveyard just a couple of metres away by the holy well, that pagan graveyard of all the unbaptized little babies, that they had to put the little babies outside in the pagan land but the priest says it's fine to bury two pigs, which is the most pagan shit I've ever heard of. And I was trying to think of the priest's logic at the time. He must have been thinking of transubstantiation, that when you eat the body of Christ, Christ is inside you. So if the two pigs eat a Christian man, then the pigs have a body of a Christian inside them, so therefore they can be buried in a Christian graveyard. And this story, it's not one of those ones where you're like, did it happen or did it not? because I'm there at the fucking gravestone with the pigs there, so something definitely happened. And what I find so fascinating and ironic about it is, that happened in 1818, but the legend of McCullough, St. McCullough, of that very churchyard, his entire legend, which is 1500 years old, is about the dangers that face market traders who are coming and going from Tulla, who are liable to be murdered, along the way from the market town and you have this fantastical bizarre unrealistic story about saint mccullough's tamed bull being killed by the robbers and they being turned to stone something utterly ridiculous but now you have something equally ridiculous and bizarre that may have actually happened a thousand years later in the same fucking graveyard in the same area and that gave me fucking chills that sent chills up me and by the time I came out of that research, it was pitch fucking dark. It was pitch fucking dark in the graveyard and I'm staring at the blue screen on my laptop going, I cannot believe this. This is amazing. I can't believe I'm fucking reading this. Oh shit, I'm in a fucking graveyard and it's dark. Get the fuck out. And I look at my phone and it's a quarter to four. And I've just spent the bones of a fucking hour inside in that graveyard reading about Michael O'Sullivan and his death and the pigs on the gravestone and I've got two missed texts from the man who was selling me that bicycle where are you? where are you? and I texted him I'm so sorry I was late 
can you come back with the bike? And I got no text back. So I didn't get my bicycle. I didn't. I went to Tala to get... I went to Tala to buy my commuter bicycle. And I missed the opportunity because I was up in a graveyard tethering the internet learning about pigs and saints and martyrs. But you know what? There'd be other bicycles. I'd rather have had an amazing adventure like that than get a new bicycle. That's worth a million fucking bicycles. So it was pitch fucking dark. Teach China was open. So I went in and I got myself a chicken curry and fried rice. And I thought about the barbecue pork spare ribs. But I was like, no fucking way. I'm not eating pork spare ribs tonight. I headed back to Limerick in the van. And I burned the air off my buddy, telling him about everything that had just happened. And he goes, there's your podcast now for next week. Tell everyone about that. And I went, fuck it, yeah, I will. That's a podcast. Because I'd intended this week's podcast to be almost my Christmas tradition where I do... Every Christmas I do a little psychology podcast where I speak to everybody and I say to you, Christmas is a very stressful time. Christmas is a time where you have to be very mindful of your own mental health because we return home to our family of origin. You can be a fully grown adult with your own life and your own solid sense of identity and an idea of who you are. But the second you go back home to your family for Christmas... And your brother is there and your sister is there and your ma's there and your dad's there. Emotionally, you can find yourself regressing to a childhood state. Your mother or father might say something to you that's deeply hurtful that takes you back to being a little kid. Or you might bicker with your brother and sister. You're back in your old fucking childhood bedroom experiencing emotions and stresses that feel alien to you now as an autonomous adult and you're left going what the fuck is this about why am I why did that one tiny comment that my mother made make me feel absolutely tiny and as if I'm in competition with my brother now why why do I feel like that sister over there is the favourite and I'm a piece of shit where's all this insecurity coming from and within family systems psychology that's known as enmeshment we can become our sense of self and our sense of identity can become consumed our family and our childhood relationships we can lose our sense of self within the dynamic of the family of origin just like that man got consumed by those two pigs he became enmeshed with those pigs maybe there's a lack of boundaries in your family and all of a sudden your siblings feel entitled to your personal affairs maybe your man da argue and then they pit members of the family off against each other you find yourself getting highly emotionally reactive, throwing tantrums, behaving in a way that you'd never behave in your autonomous adult life away from your family. Is that man who's buried with the two pigs? Was he really eaten by two pigs? Or is it just an empty coffin and a story of family dysfunction? Is it a story of murder with years and years of generational secrets and shame And this bizarre story about pigs. Or is it just a man who was eaten by two pigs? We'll never know. Michael O'Sullivan was buried. Without a solid sense of self or identity. Is it him in there? Or is it two pigs? But be mindful of your mental health this Christmas as you return to your family of origin. And when I say be mindful. Just notice. Notice if you're behaving differently. If you feel differently. If you're reacting or 
in, in certain ways are feeling emotions that are confusing and that are much more relevant to a younger version of yourself just bring it into your awareness and go ah this is okay this is a meshment this is what can happen sometimes when we return to our family of origin old insecurities and rivalries they bubble up i'm around my family it's okay and now that i've noticed this and taken it on board i've got a choice around how i react to this environment and these triggering situations all right dog bless i'd like to say i'm going to be back next week i'd like to think that i'm going to have a podcast next week but i can't promise it and i tell you why i can't promise it i'll be recording this podcast next monday and tuesday which is christmas day and saint stephen's day but my office the building is actually closed on those days on christmas day and saint stephen's day and my house where i record my podcast that's going to be quite busy on those days because people are coming over so i may not have the time or the space or the quietness to record a podcast but i'm gonna fucking try if i can so if there is no podcast next week understand that's the case in the meantime rub a dog kiss a swan tame a bull flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 